Good morning. We are coming near to the end of our, our series on, on Chronicles. So we, we're, there's about 20 chapters left, 26 chapters left, but uh, the chronicler gives a record of all the kings of uh, Judah over the, the period from Solomon to the uh, exile when the Babylonians conquer Judah and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. So there were 20 kings that ruled uh, in Jerusalem over this period of time of about 350 years. And so he records these kings. And I thought it would be more helpful if I sort of broke it up into sections. Instead of us going through each king, some, some are long accounts, some are short accounts. And there is repetition with many of the kings. So I thought it would be more helpful to sort of look at the bad kings, uh, the good kings, and the ugly kings. No, I won't do that. <laughs> the bad kings, the good kings, and then the mixture. There are, there are kings that there's a mixture of good and bad. So uh, to, this morning we're going to look at the bad kings. So we're going to cover five kings and one queen. Okay, so there was a, a queen as well. So we're going to jump around a little bit. So please turn to Second Chronicles chapter 10. So last week we finished chapter 9, and that was the end of Solomon. So we saw Solomon's life, and then Solomon dies. And we come now to his son, Rehoboam. So uh, let me read from verse 1 of chapter 10, 2 Chronicles 10, verse 1. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. So they're talking about Solomon, something we didn't uh, touch on last, last week because it's not really mentioned in those chapters, but it is mentioned in Kings. So we saw some of the, the sins of Solomon, but one of the sins that we didn't mention was that he also oppressed his own people. Uh, and here you see it, that they're talking about Solomon. He made our yoke heavy. Verse 5, he said to them, come to me again in three days. So this is Rehoboam's response. He says, come back in three days. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive. And so he asks them, he says, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be good to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall, shall say to them, 
My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so verse 12, they, they all return on the third day. Verse 13, and the king answered them harshly. And forsaking the counsel of the old men, King Rehoboam spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Well, as you can imagine, that doesn't go down very well. Uh, And when they send someone to try and enforce this, the people respond by stoning him to death. And it is at this point that the people say to Jeroboam, the northern tribes, they say to Jeroboam, you you become our leader. And this is where the kingdom is now divided. So it was a united kingdom under Saul and David and Solomon, but now it is divided. And this is where it can get confusing. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, because you're sometimes reading and then you think it's, you know, it mentions Israel and you think that's the whole people of God, but actually it's not. And then you read about Samaria and Ephraim. So let me help you a little bit. From this point, the northern kingdom under Jeroboam is uh, normally called Israel, sometimes called Samaria. So you'll know Samaria maybe from the New Testament, the the woman of Samaria, John chapter 4, or the good Samaritan, that's the northern kingdom. Samaria, and sometimes called Ephraim as well. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And so uh, they then end up with two, two monarchies. So there's the kings, that, the line in Israel, and then the line in Judah. Israel is worse than Judah, and they, they are really destroyed in 722 B.C. So here we're looking at around about 930 B.C. So they, they last about 200 years from this point uh, because they really rebel against God in a, in a very evil way and their judgment comes more quickly. Uh, as I said earlier, the southern kingdom Judah lasts about 350 years, and the chronicler is only focused on the, the monarchy in Judah. You can go and read Kings and learn about the, the, the kings in the north, but the chronicler is focused in Judah because that's the line of David. Okay? And so he's trying to encourage those who've returned from exile to have confidence in the Davidic line. God has preserved the Davidic line and he's going to bring a Messiah from the line of David. So he doesn't focus on the northern kings at all. But as we go through this, I want us to learn some lessons. So uh, this is a disaster, and I'm sure you picked up what was the problem. He refused to listen to the older and wiser counselors. Instead, he listened to his peers, the youngsters, and they said, no, you need to be firmer with these people. And it leads to disaster now. So here's a lesson for us. Uh, Make sure that you have wise counselors in your life and listen to them. The scripture is full of that advice. Job himself says this in Job chapter 12. He says, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. See these things here? (laughs) The scripture talks about the wisdom of gray hair. Now, that's not a... A law doesn't mean if you have gray hair, you're automatically wise. That's, uh, or if you don't have gray hair, you're not wise. But you understand the principle of that hopefully as one gets older, one becomes wiser. 
to get all your advice from your peers um, is, is not a wise thing necessarily. If you're in high school and your life wisdom and counsel comes from, you know, another 15-year-old, that's not the best thing to do, okay? Uh, you need to have wise counsel in your life. Proverbs 19, verse 20, listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Proverbs 12, 15, listen to advice. Oh, sorry, it's the same, repeats it as well. To listen to advice, to gain wisdom. Proverbs is all about gaining wisdom, seeking after wisdom. So make sure in your life, especially, of course, we're talking as believers here, that you have wise, godly friends. Remember what Paul says? Bad company corrupts good manners. Uh, if you're hanging around people who are pulling you down, who are giving you foolish advice, if all your wisdom is coming from the, the internet or the TV or the newspapers or magazines written by unbelievers with secular wisdom, wisdom that is from below, as James will say, that will lead to destruction, that will lead to division. The next lesson we can learn is that what the proverb says, a soft answer turns away anger. He deals harshly with the people and they respond in like manner. Uh, when you deal with situations, uh, deal sensitively and carefully and wisely. James 1.19 says this, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, so always listen, slow to speak, Whenever I do counseling, uh, there's something I heard years ago. It said, God gave us one mouth and two ears. He wants us to hear twice as much as we speak, to listen twice as much as we speak. I think if we could take that on board, that would be a good thing. Learn to listen more and speak less. Slow to anger. And then James says this, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger here of Jeroboam does not win over the people. He answers them harshly. Uh, it results in the kingdom being divided with catastrophic consequences for the rest of history. And so uh, a lesson we can learn here is how do, we, how do we respond to people? You know, there's that phrase that you win, you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Okay? So sweet words, kind words, not flattery, but thoughtful words. Uh, I remember uh, quite a while ago, uh, in my early 20s, I was, I was uh, a rep and uh, I was on my way somewhere and there was this huge traffic circle and uh, people normally went, came in this side and went out that side. And, but there was a little turn to the side here and I was coming on this way and this lady came in her car and I thought she was going to go off there, so I started to edge forward, and I actually, she was coming off here, and I, I caught her. Okay. It wasn't terrible, I just caught the side of her car, and she got out, and she was enraged and furious, and I just, apologized. I just said, I'm so sorry, because it was my fault. And it just deflated the situation totally. I just took responsibility, and she, the winds were taken out of her sails. You see, a soft answer does that in so many situations, to... To, to not uh, amplify things, to intensify things, especially when it comes to taking responsibility, it's easy to be defensive. The soft answer turns away wrath. 
And then as we read narratives, and I've mentioned this to you before, as we learn to read stories in the Bible, uh, look for repetition of words. That's the way the authors emphasize things. And maybe you notice that there's an interesting word that's repeated, and that is the word yoke. Seven times in this passage, and I'm sure we, you know what a yoke is, it's used for, for cattle when they plow uh, to, to hold them together, to get them to do what, what, is one, what is desired, to guide them and direct them. It's a way of controlling them. And so this word is repeated over and over again, and we're told that the yoke of Solomon was harsh, and now the yoke of Jeroboam is going to be even harsher. And I think that Jesus intentionally picks up on this. Did you remember Jesus' famous words in Matthew chapter 11? What does he say? Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then he says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is a massive contrast to Solomon and Jeroboam. His yoke is easy, his burden is light. Every single one of us needs rest for our souls. Uh, we need rest, we need our sins forgiven, we need our shame and our guilt dealt with. And Jesus Christ says, come to me. I'm the one. My yoke is easy. My yoke is, is light. And so keep coming to him as believers. If you're not a believer, come to him today. The yoke of every other false god, every other human being is burdensome and heavy. But the yoke of Christ is light and easy. Jump down to chapter 12, verse 1. When the rule of Rehoboam was established and he was strong, he abandoned the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. This is something we picked up last week. Things start to go well for Rehoboam. He's sort of established as the ruler in, in Judah, becomes strong, and then what does he do? He abandons the law of God. Things are going well, so I don't need God anymore. I don't need to follow him anymore. Uh, I've seen that so many times people start to flourish in life, physically, humanly speaking. They get promotions, their career takes off. Uh, students that used to be here amongst us come every Sunday. They finish their degree. They get the job in the corporate world. They start to get promotions. You start to see them less and less and less, and you start to see what do you start to see on their social media, their WhatsApp status. They start to be doing all these sporting events now every Sunday. They, that's all they focus on now is their experiences, their bucket list. No longer concerned about the things of God. They're flourishing. They've got the GTI, they've got the apartment, they've got everything, and they begin to forsake the Lord. They abandon the Lord, and that's exactly what? Rehoboam does here. He abandons the Lord. And so God raises up enemies to judge him, to attack him, and they plunder his house. And that's one of the themes of the chronicler is this instant retribution. There are consequences to sin. You abandon the Lord, there are going to be consequences. And they come in and they, 
they plunder the house of the Lord, the temple. God allows them to steal all the gold and silver out of the temple and out of the king's house. Solomon had this, this uh, massive hall filled with golden shields. They're all stolen. We're told that Rehoboam makes bronze ones okay, to replace them. He can't afford gold ones anymore. It just shows the decay of the kingdom under Rehoboam. And then his story ends in verse 14 as he dies. And we're told he did evil for he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. He didn't set his heart to seek the Lord. Now, we are to do that, to seek the Lord with all of our heart, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Uh, Christianity just doesn't just happen. Growth in holiness doesn't just happen. Uh, it's not just, you know, every day you're going to wake up a little bit holier automatically. Uh, we have to fight. It's a battle, isn't it? You have to seek the Lord. Seek and you will find. But if you're not seeking, you won't find. If you're not knocking, the door won't be open. If you're not striving after the Lord, it won't happen. So we have to seek the Lord and set our hearts to seek the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Set your heart to seek. Set your affections to seek the Lord. You have to change your affections. You have to work on that. Your desires. What a contrast to the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings. He always sought the will of his Father. Isn't that right? Over and over again, we're told that as we read the Gospels. I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of my Father. He's always looking to the Father, to please the Father, to obey the Father. We'll jump to chapter 21 now. The next evil king is a man called Jehoram, sometimes uh, Joram. Chapter 21, verse 1, we're told, Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers, that's a previous king, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. And he had brothers, and they're all named there. All these were, were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver, gold, and valuable possessions, together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword. It's like one of those mafia stories. Okay? Wipe out the competition. Kills all his brothers. And also some of the princes of Israel, the northern kingdom. He was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. Well, the first lesson is don't kill your, your siblings, okay? <laughs> uh, but I think there's a, you know, there's a sense in which our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we, I mean, the scripture talks about that. If you hate, you're murdering in your heart, isn't that right? It's a way we can destroy one another through our words, through slander, being passive-aggressive, Dishonoring one another. We're to love our, our brothers and sisters okay, in the Lord. We're told in verse 6, He walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. 
For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so here again we see the influence of, uh, sorry, the, the effect of bad influences. If you're not familiar with, with the Old Testament, Ahab is virtually a synonym for an evil king. Ahab was a, a king of Israel. He married a lady called Jezebel. Have you heard of her? Okay. Um, and really a, a sort of demonic couple, you could put it that way. Um, very, very evil, terrible things. You remember the, the, the prophets, Elijah, Elijah, Elisha, they're involved around that time. Elijah even flees from Jezebel. He's the one who defeats the prophets of Baal. Uh, during, this is, all happens during the reign of Ahab. That's what's going on at this time. And here Jehoram, he actually builds a relationship with Ahab, this wicked king, and marries his daughter, builds an alliance with, with Ahab. And her name is Athaliah, and we'll see about her just now. Verse 11, Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah, and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, and made Judah go astray. High places here is building temples or places of worship to false gods. Okay. They would build them on high places. They would build them on the tops of hills, uh, symbolic of being you know, closer to the gods. And that's what he did. Yeah, the king of Judah is building temples to false gods and leading the whole nation into this idolatry. Verse 12, And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet. So Elijah comes and sends him a letter. Uh, I thought that was quite interesting. Sent him a letter. Didn't come and see him. Uh, can you imagine getting a letter from Elijah? That must have been quite, quite frightening. Um, verse 14, this is what the letter says. So he tells him, because of all the things that you've done, killing your brothers, etc., etc. Behold, the Lord will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions. And you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. So that his stomach, his intestines are going to come out. That's the judgment that is, is now passed upon this king. Because of his sin. It's a picture of the horrific judgment if we, if we reject the Lord. And the Lord raises up enemies, and you can read about that. They come in and, and are used by God as instruments of judgment against Jehoram. Verse 18, and after all of this, the Lord struck him in his bowels and his stomach with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor, like the fires made for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for eight years in Jerusalem. And listen to this. And he departed with no one's regret. It's incredible. Nobody was sorry that he died. Nobody missed him. Because he chose to go the path of, of Ahab, he chose to 
follow after false gods, to lead the people of God astray. I thought of, you know, legacy. You know, you, it should be that people miss us when we go, isn't that right? And it's a well-known saying that more lies are told at funerals than at any other time. Um, if you've, if you've uh, been to certain funerals and you know this person was actually a real wretch, and then people are all, you know, how amazing he was and how wonderful he was, and, and it's terrible. It's, it's dishonest. Um, but not so for God's people. We should be able to legitimately at a funeral say, this person will be missed because they loved the Lord. Because of the way they lived. They, they cared. They walked a road with people. They sought out people. They didn't live selfishly off on their own, in their own corner. As a pastor, you don't want to be in a difficult situation at a funeral. You want to be able to say, this person loved the Lord. It was evident. We could all see it. That we do have regret. We grieve. But not without hope, because we'll, we'll spend eternity together. But there should be a proper grieving, because this person that we loved and uh, lived for Christ is now gone home to be with the Lord. And we're the ones who grieve. They're not grieving. They're, they're rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. But no one cared that this man died. And look at what it says. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. He, they wouldn't even bury him where kings were buried. They wouldn't light fires in memory of him. And the scripture tells us that the, the, the memory of the wicked will be blotted out. In eternity, there will be no remembrance of the wicked. They'll be forgotten. Continues, unfortunately, the next chapter, chapter 22, verse 1. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem made Isaiah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had killed all the older sons. That was a judgment that the Lord sent on Jehoram uh, to, to kill all of his, his sons. But one escaped, uh, Ahaziah, and he reigns. And he's 22 years old when he begins to reign, and he reigns for one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. That's the daughter of Ahab, the granddaughter of Omri. But Ahaziah doesn't learn. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. You can't imagine that his father was much of a good influence either. But I think a lesson here for us, is again the influence that parents can have on their children. It's not a law. You're going to see that there are bad parents and the son is good. Okay? Uh, and good parents and the son is bad. So it's not a law. But ordinarily God works through means and the influence of, of parents. Here his parents were, were horrific, evil, wicked. Athalia was a wicked woman. And she counseled him to do wickedly. 
Verse 4 says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for after the death of his father they were his counselors to his undoing. So here it is again. Who are the counselors in your, in your life? And then the challenge to us as parents is, is how are we raising our children? Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the ways of the Lord. No parent is perfect. Um, so we should be parents who confess our sins, parents who use even our sin as teaching moments in the lives of our children. And you must think like that. You know that your sins are teaching moments. Okay? God is the one who uses all things for good, even sin. Okay? God can use your sin for good. To raise our children and to trust the Lord and to pray for them. Well, he, verse 5, he even followed their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria. And uh, they were told not to do that, but he does it. And eventually he is killed by Jehu. So Jehu was, was used, raised up by God to bring judgment on the house of Ahab in the northern kingdom. And uh, because Ahaziah is around there, he also gets killed by Jehu. And so again, God's judgment comes upon him because of his, his sin. Well, at, at this time, if you, if you read in chapter 22, we come to verse 10 and we come to Athaliah. So if, if the ladies were feeling out, you know, it's all evil men. What about an evil lady? Uh, <laughs> Well, we believe that men and women are of equal value and also equally sinful. Okay? And here we have Athalia, a very, very evil lady. Verse 10, Now when Athalia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But one person escapes. Um, and so, yeah, this, this lady, again, continues the line of Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, a wicked, wicked lady. She teaches her children to do evil. And then when her son dies, she, she has all these people put to death. But one escapes because, remember, the Lord had promised to preserve the line of David. And all the way through, it's quite fascinating. There's always one that manages to escape. Reminds us of the Lord Jesus. Hey? How often they try to, to murder the Lord Jesus, but he, he escapes because it was not the right time. The Lord is preserving the line, of, the line of David so that the Messiah will come. Well, she's put to death in chapter 23 by Jehoiada the priest. It was a faithful priest who protected the line of David and eventually put her to death. Chapter 28, jump down there. We come to King Ahaz.
Verse 1, we're told he was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigns for 16 years. And then we're told he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. He makes statues. Can you imagine? This is, this is Judah. This is God's people. They're building statues to false gods. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. Human sacrifice. That's how far gone the nation is. Humans, he sacrifices his own sons according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. They're becoming like the Canaanites. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And God ordains massive judgment uh, by Israel. He actually uses the northern kingdom to judge the southern kingdom. And more than 120,000 men are slaughtered by the northern kingdom because they forsook the Lord. Verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. So he says to, to a pagan, come and help me, I need help. Because it wasn't just Israel, verse 17, for the Edomites had again invaded and defeated Judah and carried away captives, and the Philistines had made raids on the cities. He's getting attacked from every side. Verse 19, For the Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So he reaches out to the, to the king of Assyria, I need help, this pagan king. He doesn't cry out to the Lord for help. He doesn't repent. He cries out to a pagan king. And what happens? The pagan king turns on him. The lesson from this is the false gods are not there to help you. Okay? Uh, Satan is not there to help you. He hates you. He's a murderer. He's a liar. A thief. I know I doubt it very much that anyone here or watching is actually, you know, making deals with the devil. Uh, you know, people do stuff like that, but probably not the case. But every time you, you put your confidence in something other than the Lord, every time you make something else ultimate, that's exactly what you're doing. You're saying, This is the thing that will save me. This is the thing that will satisfy me. And it's a lie. That very thing will turn on you. It's the very thing that will destroy you. Verse 22 says, In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord. The same king Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, that's Assyria, which had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And so he looks to 
uh, a pagan for help. The pagan turns on him. Instead of repenting, he goes deeper into it. He says, well, they're getting victory. I'll worship their false gods. I'll leave the God of Israel and serve their false gods. Maybe they will help me. So he doesn't learn his lesson. The worse it gets, the more he looks for confidence in, in these false gods. I think there's, I, I think there's a very like, deep lesson in this, a very sophisticated lesson, because I think that's how we do behave. How often have you sinned and then spiraled in that sin, thinking, well, that's done now, I might as well go deeper into it. Maybe uh, psychologists talk about the law of diminishing returns, or counselors talk about that, the law of diminishing returns, especially with addicts. So uh, a drug addict will take a certain amount of drugs and they'll get a certain uh, high from it, But to get that same high the next time, they have to take a little bit more, and a little bit more, a little bit more. Uh, And so it is with our sin. You think, well, I I need to go deeper into this to get the same effect upon me. Instead of learning from the lesson that these false gods are liars, they cannot satisfy me, let me repent and turn to Christ, we go deeper and deeper into it. But you need to understand that all the false gods are liars and are treacherous. They promise something. They always overpromise and underdeliver. Okay. Overpromise and underdeliver. All sin is like that. It's promising you something. It's holding out something that you will be this, you'll be that. Remember the temptation of Eve. You will be like God. Okay. She was already like God. She was made in the image of God. Giving into that temptation brought death and destruction and and ruin. When we look at Christ, he's tempted, but yet without sin. He's taken into the wilderness and offered the false gods, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. But he doesn't capitulate, he doesn't give in. He overcomes. Well, the last king, I'll just mention him, uh, the last bad king is a man called Ammon in chapter 33. He does the same as the other kings. He sacrifices to the false gods and his own servants actually put him to death and turn against him. And then there's a, right at the end of the book, there's a a very short list of a few kings who were evil. But that's right at the end after Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Judah. As the prophets prophesied as an act of judgment on Judah because they continue to reject the Lord. And then ultimately they're taken into exile and the temple is destroyed. Um, Jerusalem is destroyed because of the, the sin of God's people and as these leaders led them into terrible, terrible sin. So we've learned some lessons from the example of these evil kings. But as we, as we say frequently, we believe that all of Scripture points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I believe that not every verse, okay, so not every verse is going to show you Christ, but every complete unit of Scripture is going to show us something about Jesus, because it is about Him. It's preparing 
the Old Covenant is preparing, the Old Testament is preparing the people for Christ. It's pointing towards Him. So you say, well, what can we learn from these bad kings? Maybe you've read the Bible and you think, I don't know, what am I supposed to take from this? These guys are just terrible. Well, one thing, don't do what they did. Learn lessons. And I hope you can see there's some beautiful lessons all the way through these stories that we can learn from. But the next thing is to know that they point us to Christ by antithesis. It shows us what Christ is not like. So you can say, praise the Lord, Jesus Christ is not like these kings. He is not a tyrant. He is not uh, like uh, Rehoboam. He doesn't oppress his people. He doesn't deceive us. He doesn't lie to us. He's the one who came to lay down his life for us. He's the one king who was never worthy of judgment. Every other king and every other human being is worthy of judgment. He is the one king who is never worthy of, of judgment. But he is the one king who lays down his life for his people. Who goes in the stead of sinners to receive the punishment that they deserve. So, as believers, as we read the scriptures, as we read about the kings, uh, we're going to look at the good kings as well and see how they point us to Jesus. But when you read the bad kings, rejoice to say, the Lord Jesus Christ is not like this. We have a good king, a gracious king, a king that we can go to, a king who understands us, who answers us kindly, who cares for us, who loves us and has taken the judgment that we deserve. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the richness of your word. We thank you that uh, if we read superficially, we might think, oh, there's not too much here. It seems very repetitive. It just seems that they were bad. But when we read carefully, we see that there are many lessons for us to learn. Human nature hasn't changed. We are all still prone to, to sin and to temptation. We are prone to wickedness. We are prone to hurt others, to greed, to power. So we, we do ask, Lord, that we would be wise, that we would have wise counselors in our lives, that we wouldn't believe the lies of sin and Satan, that we would know that it's treachery, that these things cannot satisfy us. That he is a liar promising the world that the wages of sin is death. And also to rejoice that you are not like these kings, Lord. You are good and perfect and beautiful. And thank you for loving us and saving us. And may we yield willingly and freely to you, Lord Jesus, and seek you with all of our heart. In your name we pray. Amen.